This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. You would think that after murdering his parents and being found to be incompetent to stand trial, that he would be sent to this mental hospital and that would be the end of the story. It was actually the beginning of 30 plus years of adventure and escapes and incredible, incredible stories. In April of 1938, he escaped and was missing for two and a half years. Twenty-three-year-old Howard Pearson spent months fashioning a metal key from a spoon to unlock the mental hospital's main door. And then he vanished. Before his escape, he had spent almost three years inside the Austin State Hospital for murdering his parents. Howard had been watched closely by attendants at the hospital. They seemed to treat him kindly, but he was certainly restricted. He wasn't allowed onto the grounds without a guard. He was told when to eat, where to sleep, and where to go. They checked all of his outgoing mail daily. The lead physician called him an excellent patient, and he never seemed to be upset or vengeful. Howard Pearson had killed his father for trying to control him too much, but he said he actually enjoyed being in a mental health facility. He was close to the attendants. In fact, he became close to the attendants by being sneaky he would tell them about the escape plans of other inmates. This happened several times. And thanks to Howard, some breakouts were averted. So he was a snitch. He could have actually tolerated the Austin State Hospital if things had continued to go smoothly there. But the warden warned Howard that he might be sent somewhere else, a maximum security hospital outside of Austin called Rusk. And now he was planning his own escape because... Howard Pearson was scared. Its full name in the 1930s was Rusk State Mental Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Defense attorney Krista Chacona has been there many times, and she says that it's very secure compared to state hospitals that don't house dangerous offenders like the Austin State Hospital. Rusk is basically as an open campus with one section in the middle, you know, the tall fencing and things like that. So I think it is a lot more like a jail than a hospital on those units. I suspect that fewer people get out of places like Rusk. In the 1930s, inmates at maximum security facilities like Rusk had far less freedom than those at minimum security facilities, like what Howard was used to. Rusk certainly would have felt more like a prison than a hospital. And the treatments were likely severe, just like they were at other hospitals. It was uh, a place where you sent the most troubled individuals and that it was, you know, the violent people. It probably made things worse. It couldn't have been good. Howard was determined to never end up in Rusk. 
In April of 1938, almost precisely three years to the day that he killed his parents, he left in the middle of the night. There was no need to break any windows thanks to that homemade key. And besides, they were all covered with barbed wire. Howard walked through a door, stripped off his pajamas, and shoved them behind a hedge next to the building. And then, Howard Pearson vanished. Newspapers across America reported on his escape with big sweeping headlines about the lunatic who slaughtered his poor parents. His escape was framed like a 1930s movie drama, a scene from one of the popular movies about mental breakdowns, like Snake Pit, starring Olivia de Havilland. My head hurts. There's something the matter with my head. Come on, darling, let me help you. Who are you? Why do you torture me? Why do you lie to me? Virginia, what is it? What's the matter? Don't you know me? I'm Robert, your husband. Let me go! Images of insane mental patients desperate to escape pervaded the media and frightened Americans. People with mental illness were stigmatized in 1930 society. But someone who had escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane was certain to spread panic throughout the public. Papers called Howard the Mad Killer. One headline read, Pearson remains free despite intensive search by officers. The superintendent of the Austin State Hospital assured reporters that his facility had strong security systems in place. Do you see our 15,000-foot wire fence, he said. It wasn't guarded because all of the dangerous inmates were assigned their own attendant, except at night. I wonder if they changed that policy after Howard's escape. Investigators needed to sort out just how to track him down. Police questioned his family, and relative after relative denied seeing Howard since his escape. Howard's siblings, Bill and Alice, were upset. He was a person with mental illness, yet not on medication, at least not anything that would have helped keep him stable. Officers revealed to the Pearson family a small detail that represented a big inequity, one we mentioned briefly before. Howard Pearson, the son of a Texas Supreme Court judge, had never been fingerprinted. If it had been you or me or a, a black kid in East Austin, he'd have been fingerprinted and he'd have been thrown in jail or uh, and God only knows what else. The policeman in charge at the time said it would have just been undignified to fingerprint him. Well, I mean, are you kidding me? Would fingerprints have helped detectives track him down? Probably not. But that's not the point. Howard Pearson was privileged in 1938. Both the authorities and medical professionals had trusted him far too much. Howard was certainly resourceful. The escape plan he devised while in lockdown worked out well. He put on that stolen brown suit and slipped on his shoes. The old Austin airport was just a few miles away from the hospital, so he walked. Howard jumped the fence, and then he tried to walk onto a plane that was boarding passengers on the tarmac. He had no idea where it was even going. The flight attendant told him that he needed to buy a ticket. He grumbled and agreed, but then another attendant refused to sell him a seat. Howard managed to hop a bus headed north, of course, no one knew who he was. 
Howard needed to get as far away from Texas as he could. He worried about being spotted, then shackled and sent back. He hoped that no one in Wichita, Kansas would recognize him. But he didn't stay long, just two weeks. The national newspapers were printing his photo daily, the picture of him with his arm in a sling right after he murdered his parents. Howard ran to Lusky, Wyoming next, which was even more rural than Kansas. He toiled on ranches there from April of 1938 until July, when he decided that work was just too hard. He actually settled in Wisconsin and took a job collecting money for a weekly magazine. But he just couldn't relax. He was anxious and paranoid. The fear of getting caught was all-consuming. Howard fled to Minneapolis, Minnesota next to work for the same magazine. And that's where he settled into a quiet life. But he was never comfortable or really happy. The anxiety of being discovered as a killer was overpowering. And when Howard's anxiety became too much, dangerous things happened. On Friday, October 11th, 1940, a man watched the murderer step off a bus in downtown Minneapolis. Howard Pearson had been on the run for more than two years. He was 28 years old now. Howard didn't know that the sheriff back in Austin, Texas, had sent bulletins to the police chiefs of every major city, including Minneapolis. Howard didn't seem to notice the detective as they both walked, until he felt a hand on his shoulder. A policeman in Minneapolis, Minnesota, recognized him from a wanted poster. The officer stared closely at Howard's face. What's your name? He wanted to know. Nathan Horton was Howard's reply. The cop pulled out a bulletin with Howard's photo on it. He ordered Howard to roll up his left sleeve. The detective examined the scar. Howard looked down and said, That's me. You finally caught me. He had been in Minneapolis for a year, He bought a car, he had a good job, and he was reliable and well-liked. At least, he worked hard to pretend to be those things. He had almost secured the normal life he had been longing for. But that was over now. By late 1940, Howard was back in the state hospital in Austin, Texas, after a nearly three-year absence. The 28-year-old said he was sane. He'd left because he no longer needed therapy. He said he had used the last few years to conquer his delusions. He held down jobs. He had made friends. He was a responsible citizen, he said. He had not hurt anyone. But the director of the program disagreed, which might have actually saved Howard's life because Austin's district attorney was anxious to prosecute Howard for the murder of his parents. And remember, doctors said that if he were declared sane, then he could be put on trial. It's been difficult for me to sort out how I should feel about Howard Pearson at this point. And I wanted to know how the rest of the family now felt about Will Pearson since I found out all this new information. 
Oliver Perkins and his wife Janet Fish were a little bit surprised when I emailed them a few months after we met. If you're looking at his psychology, it seems to me that the money is just one indicator of a bigger issue Howard has, which is it sounds like he was emotionally abused for a very long time from the father because Alice and Bill said that the judge was just really unstable at home. Hmm. To me, it feels like that is the bigger motive, but, but then there's the money is also there too. Yeah, the money seemed to me... The money doesn't seem enough to want you to kill your parent, but abuse and anger and, you you know, if he had these mental health issues, that he would get, you know, just so angry at, at his father and then, like, as you say, at his mother for not protecting him from that. Yeah. I can kind of see that more than, well, gum, they're not giving me the money, I'll just kill him, you know. <laughs> well, of course, the two could be related. Mm-hmm. Um the money could have been sort of the catalyst, the trigger, um, and yet you had all this deep-seated animosity. But, man, you sure don't get any indication of that animosity uh, other than these stories. So what Anne told me is that Lena had a sister, a younger sister, who stayed with them for quite a mm-hmm. while. She was in her 20s. I mean, she was probably going to UT. And she called, I quoted this because Tom said the same thing, that they called the judge the town angel and the home devil. So maybe the psychological problems were hereditary. <laughs> maybe, or maybe he just became, maybe Will became bitter over his declining health and then plus his money issues. Plus and he has a son who is not quite normal. And instead of acting sympathetically, he acts like a tyrant and tries to force Howard into a particular mold that he, he wants him to be. visualizes. I don't know. So much of the information that has been passed around this family was hearsay. Um... That's another one of those cases where the the family story that I recall turned out to not be exactly right. <clears throat> and of course, you know, third hand, fourth hand information, uh, as your daddy might have explained to you, there's a reason for the hearsay rule, you know. Oliver is a retired attorney, and actually, he was one of my dad's students at the University of Texas. My father was a criminal law professor there for almost 40 years. And yeah, he always talked a lot about hearsay and why it's inadmissible in court. Because gossip is unreliable. But not all of it. Just about everyone I spoke with knew what happened with Howard in 1952. In December of 1952, he escaped again, this time with another inmate, The other inmate at the Austin State Hospital was 29-year-old Gilbert Wagner. He had been incarcerated for making deadly threats, and the staff was constantly concerned about him. The criminal ward of the Austin State Hospital had spent weeks in turmoil over the rumor that they might all be transferred to Rusk. None of them wanted that. They were overcrowded, and most of them were very dangerous. And so a group of patients had plotted the escape. 
The head of the hospital said four men had picked a window lock around 7 o'clock late that night, but only Howard and Gilbert were able to lower themselves from the third floor window. The police considered the pair to be very dangerous. Once again, newspapers across the country covered the story. One headline read, 1935 Slayer of Parents Flees Again. Another said, Patricide Again on the Loose. The press described him as Howard Pearson, moody, brooding killer. Howard was 38 years old now and on the run with another dangerous criminal. But not for long. The two quickly split up. Howard headed east while Gilbert went to Illinois. Four days later, Gilbert was arrested. Now Howard was the sole focus of the prison escape. The officials at the Austin State Hospital were embarrassed, and they should have been, because once again, the national media printed Howard Pearson's photos in papers across the country. There were more wanted posters, just like the one that resulted in his capture the last time. Gray Pearson was very young when his family answered the door to a team of anxious investigators that were on their porch. Texas Rangers came to our house when I was like a year and a half, two years old. They came after he broke out of the um, asylum for the second time. They came to Eastland to interview my father. They interviewed every relative they could find. Apparently it was a huge deal trying to find him. And of course they were unsuccessful, which is surprising given the fact that he'd been locked up. You'd think his resources would be very limited. Howard found employment much like he did after his last escape, but he went in sort of the opposite direction toward the Northeast. He shows up, goes to soup kitchens, does odd jobs, assumes identities. You know, back then, I don't think people needed ID cards to get a job. His niece, Ann Pearson, says that Howard really valued a few of the jobs that he had. He had eaten at soup kitchens some when he was out, and he thought they was, that was a really good thing to do, to, you know, work in a soup kitchen. He told me once that he worked as a dishwasher at a Chinese restaurant, um, he also told me, when I came back from Germany, I got involved in working at a soup kitchen here in Gainesville, and he told me once that he was really glad I was doing that. After his previous escape in 1938, Howard had eventually started to live almost carefree until he was spotted by a police officer in Minneapolis. But this time was different. He was older, and it was harder to find work. Howard had earned an odd title, Texas's most wanted criminally insane fugitive. That's specific, but it meant a lot of people were looking for him, and he could never rest easy. Howard's paranoia about being captured was intense, and the pressure it created grew and grew. He was technically free, but he was trapped by his fears, and the situation was untenable. Three years after his escape, in 1955, Howard was in Syracuse, New York, when he decided he had been a normal person for too long. He wanted to stop running. He spent three years roaming the United States, and, you know, he wasn't even found. 
he had decided he was tired of running and tired of being a fugitive. A few things convinced him that he needed it all to stop. He had a guilty conscience from evading the law, plus he was exhausted. He went to see an attorney in Syracuse, hoping for some advice. He told the man that he murdered his parents in 1935. The attorney wanted nothing to do with the case, and he sent him to a doctor instead. He approached a psychiatrist to see if he could get him declared sane, and the psychiatrist interviewed him and then turned him in. (laughs) New York police placed handcuffs on Howard. He was going to be returned to Texas to be incarcerated in the one place he didn't want to be, Rusk. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. After spending another three years on the run, Howard Pearson was returning to Rusk, where he didn't want to be. But after all of that time out in the real world, a place like Rusk might actually have seemed like an acceptable alternative. That's a hard life, especially someone who's been institutionalized so long that you're told what to do day in and day out, and you're told when to show up to eat and when the shower is going to be turned on and going from that to just being a drifter for three years must have been very, very difficult. I think he just had enough and just gave himself up. Maybe he felt more comfortable giving himself up to a mental health professional because he knew that world. He understood those people because, you know, he didn't walk into a, a police station. He felt like he needed help. You would think so, or maybe maybe he trusted the mental health professional more than the police to treat him with kindness. So Howard returned to Texas almost exactly three years to the day that he had escaped the second time. Tom Reevely was an Austin defense attorney who would soon defend Howard after yet another twist in this story. Reevely is an important figure in the state of Texas, so important that his papers and oral interviews are stored at the East Texas Research Center at R.W. Steen Library at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. He's a senior judge at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's still alive? He's still alive. He must be close to 100. He actually died in December of 2020 at age 99. And amazingly, he did serve on the Court of Appeals until he passed away. 
Judge Reevely knew Howard, and he spent time with Bill and Alice because, and this is where the story gets even more complicated, his siblings had provided for him for decades. He was always writing, wanting some piece of clothing or something to eat or something. Even with what he had done, even with being warned to be careful when he had escaped, they treated him as as a brother. Bill and Alice stood by Howard for more than 25 years. They were extremely worried when he had escaped, both times. They were concerned that he wasn't cured, that he might be capable of hurting someone again. But here's the weird twist. When Howard murdered Will and Lena Pearson, all three of the children inherited their parents' estate, which included the $17,000 life insurance policy. And Tom Ravely says that this money had been invested well over the past three decades. His brother, William Pearson Jr., had uh, taught geography at uh, a university in Florida, and his sister, Alice, had moved to California. Judge Pearson had left an estate with some minerals and some land, some of it near Austin. Alice and, and William Jr. had taken a third of it, and they said, now we, we're going to protect Howard's part of it. And so his brother, Bill, had been very careful to take care of it. So think about this. Howard had killed their parents, at least partially for the life insurance money, and now he would be entitled to it if the hospital ever chose to release him. You mentioned earlier in this podcast that, uh, you know, very often family rallies around the accused. And and that, of course, is true. But to this extent, I've never seen uh, such sibling loyalty because it went beyond just advocating for innocence. Remember that statement because another family member has a theory about that. And it's really, really dark. The funds were not that big in 1935, less than $20,000 for each of them. But decades later, Howard's portion was more than $800,000. Today, it would have been worth almost $7 million. When he was institutionalized, he had inherited, you know, a certain amount of money from my grandparents. And because he was institutionalized, he used, spent very little of it. Money, when you don't spend it, accumulates, you know, so... That's why he was, you know, left with a more sizable estate than he would have had otherwise. None of this had been an issue for almost 30 years until June of 1963. That afternoon, Bill Pearson's phone rang and his son answered. Bill was just pulling into the driveway with his daughter, Anne, when her brother met them outside. He seemed alarmed. And I remember we drove up in the car and he walked out to the car and told my father that the doctor from Rusk had called He thought he was sane, and they were backing him up, and they were recommending his release. And I just remember how shocked everybody was, because it was not what we expected to hear. Howard Pearson had been a patient at mental health facilities for almost 30 years. But now, the superintendent at Rusk State Hospital said there was nothing more they could do for him. Dr. Charles Kastner declared that Howard was no longer medically insane. And so he contacted the sheriff of Travis County and said, come and take him. Well, now what do you do? When the sheriff contacted a judge, the judge quite properly said, no, no. You cannot declare someone no longer insane. 
Again, insanity is a legal designation, not a medical one. In 1963, the superintendent at Rusk says, he's no longer insane. The judge says, no, no, you don't decide that. I will decide that or a jury will. And remember that Austin's district attorney in 1935 vowed to put Howard on trial for murder if he were ever released. Bill and Alice were incredibly shocked. They had been told for years that there was virtually no chance of Howard being released from the hospital. But according to Howard's doctors, things had changed despite his two escapes. The doctors were certain that he would no longer be a danger to anyone. So when Bill and Alice got the news, they responded just like they did in 1935. They hired a team of outstanding defense attorneys, including Tom Reevely. But there was a little hitch. Tom Reevely had never tried a murder case before. Reevely took a trip to the state hospital outside of Austin to find out more from the head of Rusk. So I stopped in Rusk and talked to the superintendent. His name was Caswell. I don't know what kind of a doctor he was. I wasn't impressed with him at all. I'd hate to be dependent on him as a doctor. Later on, he came by the office in Austin. He thought maybe if there's something he could testify to, it'd be worth him making a little money. So Reevely thought little of the superintendent and whether he had the ability to assess anyone correctly. But Reevely's opinion didn't actually matter because Dr. Kastner had made his choice. Howard Pearson should no longer be confined to a mental institution. Reevely says Kastner believed that the hospital could do no more for Howard. If you recover sanity, you will be abnormal, but you won't be insane. We call it a burnout. If it burns out, this severe mental illness, he will be less likely to be violent or to harm anybody than anybody in this courtroom. may have problems getting along with people, but he'll never be a danger. Not now. And former law school professor Linda Frost says that the assessment is correct in many cases. We spend so much money locking people up for years and years. Treatment and supports are relatively cheap compared to that. And if you help people not only not recommit offenses, because if you, frankly, if you lock somebody up for 10, 20 years, the chances of them committing another offense are low just because they're older. But that might not have been the case with Howard. Dr. Kastner's decision to declare that Howard was now sane triggered a cascade of events he would now be competent to stand trial. I come on to Austin and and I met with Bill and uh, he said he'd like for me to represent him. I said, well, first we'll have to have a trial about whether he is sane now. And if the jury finds that he is sane now and can be tried, then we'll have to try his murder case and the defense will be insanity. Bill Pearson was the guardian of the estate, the now very sizable estate left by their parents. And I said, Mr. Pearson, I'm impressed with with your care and attention to your brother under all the circumstances. But if I'm representing him, I'm not representing you. I have to represent him. And if there should be some conflict, I, I can't help you on that. Oh, he said, that's what I want. There was a sanity hearing for Howard in September of 1963, and the court found him competent to stand trial for murder, and he was released on a $15,000 bond. But Austin's district attorney wasn't all that anxious to start a trial, 
particularly for a murder that happened in 1935. So he decided to offer Howard a deal, a really, really good deal. District attorney said, well, let him plead guilty and I'll uh, go for time served and he can go free. I said, well, let me tell my people. I told Howard and, oh, he said, that's fine. But Howard didn't know that there was a stipulation in the Pearson's estate and how that inheritance would be distributed. If Howard was convicted of murdering his parents, he would forfeit his portion of the money. He wouldn't receive it. And just a reminder, it would be worth millions of dollars today. I told Bill, I said, Bill, if he pleads guilty, he doesn't get any of that money. That's yours analysis. One of the remarkable things about those siblings is that the district attorney had offered Howard a plea deal. But when the siblings found out that he was not going to be able to inherit his portion of his dad's estate, they rejected it and took their chances with the jury. And this brings me to another family fable a rumor that some of the family has heard for decades. It took me four months, but I finally found Marsha Whetstone in Corpus Christi. Her father was Howard's cousin, Marshall Pearson. Howard lived with Marshall and his family when he worked in those oil fields in East Texas in the early 1930s. Marsha says that her father always had a suspicion, something she had heard growing up about why Howard really did kill his parents. Bill and Alice had convinced him to do it. I I guess deep down inside, Howard had had a lot of hostility towards his dad. And then his sister and brother, I guess, used that to their advantage because they were pushing Howard into... Well, really and truly, what I was told was that they had pretty much instigated the whole thing by telling Howard all kinds of stuff about things that Judge Pearson and his wife were doing that would be harmful to Howard, like wanting to put him away. So this shocked me when I first heard it. It just seems unbelievable. But Marsha was really clear about the rumor. They kind of put in Howard's mind that the only way he was going to have any kind of life at all was if his mom and dad were gone. Now, this is all what my dad told me. But everybody in the family, according to what he said, felt when Howard killed his mom and dad that his sister and brother had really pushed him into it. Given everything that I've learned about Alice and Bill, this seems unlikely. But I have to at least consider it for now. Bill and Alice have always seemed to be really kind people. And plus, when Howard talked to his friend about his plans to kill his parents, he said that he had been writing to his siblings for months, pretending like everything was fine. That means, at the very least, that Howard definitely didn't share his plans with Bill and Alice. But then there's the matter of that money. Howard's siblings stood to benefit from getting their inheritance when Howard killed their parents. And if he were prevented from getting his share of that money, Bill and Alice would get even more for themselves. Bill's daughter, Anne, says they really weren't interested in the money for themselves. No, I don't think the money was the big issue. They never planned on getting his money. If they had wanted the money, they likely wouldn't have worked so hard on Howard's defense. It seems more likely to me that they just understood what their brother had gone through as a child. They loved Howard, and they just wanted to help him. 
So Alice and Bill had decided to go to trial to take their chances with a jury. Howard really did need that money. But if he were found guilty, he couldn't get any of it. Reevely met with Bill Pearson once again. And I said, now we're going to need expert witnesses because this is a horrible crime and it would take somebody seriously ill to kill his mother and father the way he did it. He said, I understand, and that's, he has money for that purpose. Get whatever you need. But Reevely was a little nervous because he had a conversation with the district attorney, the one who initially charged Howard with murder in 1935. And the DA's recollection of what happened did not tally with the description of an insanity case. And he said when Howard Pearson was brought in, he knew what he had done was wrong. He was trying to make up reasons. So even the DA in 1935 didn't think that Howard should have been considered legally insane. And author Gary Laverne agrees. I don't think he was schizophrenic, at least as I understand that term. I think he was delusional. Now, does that mean that this individual, like a Howard, that when they do these things, when they, when they kill, they should be treated differently from other people? And now Howard might have another chance to get out of serving jail time. He could have walked away without having to do any of this because of that plea deal. Alice and Bill really wanted Howard to be acquitted and to be able to get his money. But they also didn't want him to believe that they had any control over his money. Because, as we've seen, Howard did not react well to feeling powerless. And, of course, this story made headlines once again. The stories brought up a well-worn controversy in America. What do you do with these people? What should your policy be? Do you say, for example, well, we need to look at these on a case-by-case basis? That sounds perfectly reasonable until you find out that black people are more likely to be sent to prison than white people. Rich people are less likely to be sent to prison than poor people. What kind of policy is that? Is that justice? And so that's one of the frustrating things. And it happens even today. I asked retired investigator Fred Burton about the law enforcement community's reaction to the insanity defense. You know, I just wonder if there is that feeling that someone who's mentally ill who has committed a crime and then goes to an institution where he could possibly be released has gotten away somehow with murder. Is that a feeling that cops sometimes have? Is it still a struggle? Without a doubt. I think uh, cops... uh you know, do their job, investigate the crime, put together the case, present it to the district attorney or the assistant U.S. attorney. And, uh, you know, they've done their job, but then uh, at the end of the day, you see people walk uh, after you know that they were behind that crime of violence. And uh, I think the most vivid example of that would be the Hinckley case vis-a-vis President Reagan. On March 30, 1981, John Hinckley Jr. shot and wounded Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C. The president was returning to his limousine after a speaking engagement at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Hinckley had been obsessed with actress Jodie Foster. He believed that shooting Reagan would impress her. Doctors say he suffered from acute psychosis and extreme depression. He spent decades in a psychiatric ward in Washington. But in 2016, Physicians decided that he was stable and suggested that he be released with supervision. 
Five years later, Hinckley seems to be living a stable and productive life. Fred Burton says that Howard Pearson might have been able to do the same thing, live a relatively peaceful life, or at least not kill anyone else. You know, I kind of look at it from another side of the coin that, you know, here was an individual that, you know, served uh, many, many years in prison. He, he paid his dues. And if the system feels that, uh, that he could be rehabilitated or within parameters being let go, that that's the right thing to do. Howard's brother and sister were optimistic about his potential for living a healthy life outside of the state hospital. But they were also very realistic. Bill Pearson knew that Howard was prone to obsessive behavior and that money, his money, might very well be a dangerous trigger. And Bill didn't want to be in the crosshairs by being in charge of Howard's money. They planned to set up a trust for Howard in case he was acquitted, one that would allow him to draw the money slowly, not in one large chunk. And I think they they thought that would be better, to have him outright inherit the money than them have to give it to him. That's why the trust was set up, because they, they felt like he, he'd been institutionalized for so long that he had absolutely no money management skills. When he had something on his mind, he was not easy to distract. So as Howard Pearson's murder trial loomed, his siblings were concerned. If Howard were convicted, he might be sent to prison for life, which certainly would threaten his mental stability once again. But if he were acquitted, he would be released. And that would become an even more complicated situation. When I made a second visit to Oliver Perkins to update him, I read one of Alice's letters about Howard. Um, She says, what worries Bill and I is that we think he is immature and inexperienced, that he would lose his estate if it were turned over to him. And this would be very damaging to his mental health. We are afraid, Bill and I, that we would have to feed him, etc. And we simply would not be financially able to support him, still we would be afraid to refuse to help him. Actually, I'm somewhat afraid of him. But I also do not want to run the risk of him regressing to a point where he might be dangerous to any of us or anyone else. He is very determined and a rigid person. It sounds like he definitely did not get fully recovered from his (laughs) mental health issues. on the final episode of season three of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I mean, I always wondered because he did kill both of them. And I don't know how his mom figured into that. I just wondered if he included Lena because she didn't try to protect him from his dad. I think he, he had these resentments, which were, you know, understandable. But I also think he had voices telling him that he should do something about them. He went to Sears and bought some heavy wrenches and then put his belt through the handles of the wrenches and tightened his belt. If you love true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. They're available anywhere you buy books. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. 
Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. The clip at the beginning of this episode is from the 1948 movie, The Snake Pit. The letters mentioned in this episode were kindly supplied by the East Texas Research Center at Stephen F. Austin University. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.